Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Before the war was over, 280,000 men from France, Germany, and Britain alone would suffer some form of facial trauma. And this is really what allows plastic surgery and facial reconstruction to enter this new modern era. Okay, quick content warning. In this episode, there is talk of graphic war injuries. It is not for the faint-hearted, so if that's not your kind of thing, you might want to skip this episode. Hello, hello, and welcome once again to Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions from History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell. Thank you very much for your company. In today's episode, I'm going to be exploring the origins of plastic surgery. Now, this is a story which doesn't start in Harley Street, as you might think, or expensive private clinics in Beverly Hills, but actually it began on the battlefield hospitals during World War One. By 1914, the way war was fought had been radically transformed by new technology. And at the same time, medical advances have improved the treatment of battlefield injuries. And this meant soldiers were both more likely to be hit by artillery, but also they were more likely to survive sustained injuries better than ever before, including direct hits to the face. Soldiers were returning from the front with life-changing injuries, their faces changed, and being asked to return to civilian life in a society largely intolerant of facial disfigurement. Was there a way to ease this reintegration into society and help soldiers recover their past lives and identities through surgery? Well, today I'm joined by Lindsay Fitzharris, the author of the fantastic book, The Facemaker, which uncovers the forgotten story of the pioneering plastic surgeon called Harold Gillies, who is a visionary surgeon who rebuilt the faces of many First World War injured soldiers. And in the process of doing this, really ushered in the modern era of plastic surgery. Hey, 
Hey, welcome, Lindsay, to the show. Thank you so much. This is my first official interview. We've bagged a scoop. <laughs> have you been doing lots of American stuff? You said you I have. Yeah, yeah okay. I'm heading off on a U.S. book tour very soon, so prepping for that at the moment. It sounds so glamorous going on a U.S. book tour. Do they put <laughs> you up not. in like really nice hotels? And... No, it, it's not at all. It's basically every day I'm in a new hotel or I'm on a flight, but it's great because not a lot of authors get that opportunity. So it's wonderful to be given the opportunity. But I am going to be pretty shattered by the end of that tour, I'll tell you. You are going to be shattered. But you're American, though, aren't you? I so am, yeah. whereabouts are you from? But I've originally? lived here for 20 years. You're an honorary Brit. Yeah, yeah. I did my PhD at Oxford, and they couldn't beat this Chicago accent out of me. I'm holding on to it. Um, But yeah. It's a fine accent. Hey, listen, the Butchering Art, which was your, I think, was that your first book? It was, yeah. It's a really amazing book. It's one of those sort of toe-curling books in a good way, because I don't know why are we so obsessed by medical history. I know you're a doctor of medical history. It's just something that we all are just fascinated by. I don't know whether it's the gruesomeness of it or what is it? Yeah, it's funny. And I think it's a gray space, actually, because when I started blogging, I had a blog called The Surgeon's Apprentice, and not many people were doing it. Now it's sort of catching on, and I have an Instagram page where people can go and see all this gruesome stuff. But when I was on tour with the butchering art, I would tell everybody that the Victorians actually used to buy tickets into the operating theater. And everybody was like, wow, that's so crazy. The Victorians must have been so macabre. But actually, think about how many TV shows today are medical dramas. You know, we still have that fascination. And I think it's because even if you don't like history, you can like medical history because everybody knows what it's like to be sick. And I think in that sense, it's very relatable. So where I come in, I could tell you what would happen if you had a toothache in 1792 or you needed a leg removed in 1844. So that's kind of what I fill in historically. And actually, a lot of that kind of voyeuristic curiosity about faces, about disfigurement, really plays into the new story that I'm telling, which is called The Facemaker, which is about the pioneering surgeon Harold Gillies, who rebuilt faces during the First World War. Lindsay, you're so good at steering me back on topic. <laughs> I noticed how you did that just brilliantly. You like make him talk about my new book. It's The Facemaker. It's a wonderful book. It's really, really good. It's wonderful for lots of reasons. It's wonderful because you've given us this new name. For those of you who are wondering the origins of plastic surgery, well, not the, the origins of origins, uh, this chap... Harold Gillies that you describe as the grandfather of plastic surgery. And I think actually before we sort of get into it, the interesting thing for me as a, someone who's interested in science and technology is that in a way it's conflict, it's war once again, which seems to be the accelerator of plastic surgery. Because a lot of the book is centred around the horrors of the First World War, this new technology of the First World War designed to kill people on an industrial scale and meant huge disfigurement. But just talk us through that sort of period, if you will. Yeah. As you said, the First World War, really, the advances in weaponry and artillery at this time were so many that a company of just 300 men in 1914 could deploy equivalent firepower as a 60,000 strong army during the Napoleonic Wars. So you have all kinds of ghastly inventions like the flamethrower, tanks, that was new to the war, and of course chemical warfare. Even as gas masks were being shipped to the front, these lethal gas attacks became instantly synonymous with the savagery of the First World War. And so men were maimed, they were burned, they were gassed, some were even kicked in the face by horses. Before the war was over, 280,000 men from France, Germany, and Britain alone would suffer some form of facial trauma. So this is on a scale never seen before. And this is really what allows plastic surgery and facial reconstruction to enter this new modern era where these new things can be tested and become standardized into practice. Actually, you make the really good point in the book as well, whereas something like losing an arm or losing a leg 
in a way, you can be sort of seen as something rather heroic. But actually, we have a very specific way of dealing with people with facial disfigurement. It's to do with how human beings see each other. The face is such an important thing for visual cues. So seeing terribly disfigured faces, you know, it was shocking. Yeah, I mean, it was mm. shocking. It was shocking then. There's still that aspect now. You know, Hollywood has this very lazy trope for evilness, which is disfigurement. I mean, think about it. Darth Vader, Voldemort, Blofeld, all the Bond villains, Joker, Harvey Dent. He becomes evil only after he's disfigured. So when you think about that, it's really still entrenched in popular culture and a lot of it has to do with hundreds and hundreds of years ago, if you contracted, for instance, syphilis, what would happen is your nose would cave in and you get this thing called saddle nose. It was very disfiguring. And so a lot of times disfigurement was associated with disease or with criminal behavior because people were even purposely disfigured for doing certain crimes. So that still is a whole, I mean, we're not aware of it today, but there's still that hold in popular culture. And that's clearly why Hollywood can kind of pivot to this very lazy trope and say, well, this person's evil. Look at how they're disfigured here. That's really interesting. So suddenly we had on an industrial scale, young men coming back from the front, terrible disfigurement. Enter Harold Gillies, which is a name that I wasn't familiar with until I read this book. And he really was. He tell us who he was and why was he so important in this field? So Harold Gillies was an ENT surgeon when the war broke out, and he ends up going to volunteer with the Red Cross. And actually, there's this character in the book, and I say character, but this is nonfiction, but he's a real character. His name is Charles Vladier, and he's this French-American dentist, and he retrofits his Rolls Royce with a dental chair, and he literally drives it to the front under a hail of bullets. I mean, this guy is a total badass. And if there's ever a movie or a TV show made, I can't wait to see that Rolls Royce, you know, roll into scene because it's... It's just incredible. I actually have a picture of it because it went up for auction in 2013. Hang on. So it's the Silver Shadow, I think, Rolls-Royce. Yeah, the Silver Ghost, yeah. Silver Ghost, sorry. (laughs) Hang on. Why did he... So he put a dental chair in the back of his Rolls-Royce and then drove out to the front in a hail of bullets. To the front (laughs) to treat a general with a toothache. And why he did it was because there were really no dentists being sent with the army at this time. Now, in the 19th century, dental care was actually more important to the army because they used to say an army that could bite can fight. And that referred to the idea that you'd have to bite the tops of the cartridges off when you were loading the ammunition. In the early 20th century, this doesn't become necessary, so teeth become less interesting to the army to keep up. So as a result, no dentists are actually sent with the British army at the beginning of the First World War. And so Vladier is kind of filling that gap. And he actually ends up working for free the entire war. Like I said, the guy is a legend. He's a badass. And it was Harold Gillies who came into contact with Vladier near the Western Front. And it was Vladier who showed him this desperate need for facial reconstruction at this time and also the importance of good dentistry when rebuilding a face. Why is dentistry... Well, I mean, I suppose there's obvious reasons, but why is it so fundamental for facial reconstruction? Yeah, I mean, we're not talking about a tooth cleaning here. If you can picture a guy, you know, a man who's had part of his jaw ripped off, you have a lot of missing hard tissue as well. So at the time, someone like Vladier, he is creating the stabilizing structures so that gillies can take the soft tissue and start building and remolding the face around it. So in the end, what gillies does is he works collaboratively with a lot of different kinds of people, including dentists. His dental surgeon was a guy named William Kelsey Fry, who's incredibly important to the story that Gillies is involved in. And he also brings on artists. He brings in mask makers. He brings in photographers, x-ray technicians. And they all work both creatively as well as scientifically on this problem on how to build a soldier's face. 
You mentioned the x-rays there. We talk about how technology in terms of killing people type of technology has really kind of accelerated this idea of plastic surgery and facial reconstruction. But also things like x-rays. I mean, x-rays had only been around, presumably, when were x-rays? Like 1880s, I think, with the first x-rays? Yeah, it was still very new technology. And actually, Marie Curie created these little mobile x-ray units that you could drive to the front. And she trained a bunch of women on how to use these. And so that was really important. Later, actually, in the book, in the epilogue, I talk about this switch from reconstructive surgery to cosmetic. And in fact, x-rays were used for a while to remove hair. So a lot of women were undergoing x-rays on their face to remove facial hair. And as a result, they were ending up getting cancer. And then in comes gillies to do reconstructive work when the cancers are removed. So yeah, it swings and roundabouts. There's good aspects to this technology. And then as we're kind of understanding how it works, there are bad things that come from it as well. We're going to get onto cosmetic technology later on because I'm fascinated by all this. Everybody's fascinated with that part. Yeah. <laughs> Let's imagine that we're at the front. You know, that your description of what happens to soldiers is impressive and disturbing in the book. But let's imagine I have my jaw completely ripped off. Take me through the process. Take me through what's going to happen to me, what Gilly does, what does the dentist do, what does the x-ray person do. Just take us through the journey, if you will. One of the things I wanted to do with this book, I write narrative nonfiction. So anybody out there who doesn't really like history, you should know that narrative nonfiction reads like a novel. So it hopefully isn't too scary to engage with. You don't need to know anything about. It should be an effortless read. I want people to not have to feel like they have to come into it knowing anything, not even anything about World War One. You should just be able to fall into it. So what I wanted to do with this book was to drop the reader into the trenches right from the start. So there's a guy named Percy Clare at the beginning of the book, and he's shot in the face. And I wanted to follow him from being shot to just how he gets into Gilly's care. And it can be really a convoluted journey at that point. Now, the first thing that happened when you got shot in the face was you had to get off the field. Now, this could be really difficult. There's a guy named Private Walter Ashworth who actually lays on the field for three days without getting removed. He has no jaw. He can't even scream for help. Now, what happened was these stretcher bearers, they get onto the battlefield. And of course, they were becoming targets themselves. So they were making split-second decisions about who to take, who to leave. And a face wound is very ghastly. Anybody who's even cut their face, you know, you'll know it bleeds and it bleeds. So a lot of times these stretcher bearers just thought they can't survive. So they would just leave these guys. So the first challenge was getting off the battlefield. The other thing that could happen to you is they could take you off on a stretcher and place you on your back. And what would happen is you would drown in your own blood because, again, remember, this is very vascular, or your tongue would slip back into the back of your throat because you're missing certain anatomy that anchors the tongue into a normal position. So, again, just surviving and getting off the field is half the battle. So if you get hit in the face, first got to get off the field. Then you need to get evacuated back to Britain, and ideally you need to fall into the hands of Harold Gillies. There are a lot of surgeons at this time. There's patients in the face maker who get sent to the wrong hospital and their procedures are delayed. So once you're there, he's going to start that process of rebuilding your face. And this could take sometimes years. And again, depending how much you know structure is missing, you're going to have to take what they call skin flaps. This is different. So if you think of flaps as like, you might, this is like the confusing tech technical part of it. I don't know. Just the word flap freaks me out. <laughs> yeah. There's just something, you know, oh. 
flap of skin just like blah. there's something yeah. yeah something kind of like meaty about it and yeah exactly and that's actually and plastic surgeon said to me you need to think of the flaps as the stakes of plastic surgery it tends to be more meaty tissue so if you miss part of your your nose is gone or part of your jaw is gone you're going to need a flap as opposed to a skin graft a skin graft is taken from the body somewhere it's completely severed from its blood supply and it tends to be like the prosciutto of of plastic surgery, right? So you got the steaks and then you got like the salami, the like delicate pieces of salami. So, and a lot of times he's taking flaps and he's rebuilding tissue. But like I said, it's a long process. So what's the difference? So a skin graft is where, let's say you'll cut a bit off my thigh or my backside or whatever and put it somewhere else. How long have we been doing that for? This isn't a new thing, is it? No, it's not a new thing. I go into a little bit of the history. I mean, they're doing it in sort of the 19th century. Of course, there's risks because the skin graft has to attach to a blood supply. And remember, this is all before antibiotics, so infection rates could be quite high. Okay, give us the difference between a skin graft, which I can imagine, as you say, the salami, taking a bit of salami and sticking it somewhere, and a flap. Am I right in thinking a flap is still attached, anchored somewhere to the blood supply? But how does one get a flap from A to B? So one of the most ancient procedures is rhinoplasty dating back thousands of years. And the way that they would do it is you're correct that the flap remains attached on one side to the blood supply, which they call the pedicle. So they would take a flap from the forehead. If you can imagine like taking a piece of Basically, if you put a piece of string from the tip of your nose to the top of your forehead, you will discover that the length of your nose is the same as the length of your forehead. So it's a perfect place to take a flap and reconstruct. <laughs> so you just sort of flip it upside down. You sort of peel it back. Exactly. And then... Wow. Flip it upside down. You can rebuild the nose. And what happens is the skin that's left over on the forehead is quite stretchy. So you can stretch the remaining skin to cover the deformity, essentially, that you've now created by using the flap. So this was a really effective way at rebuilding the nose. And what Gillies was able to ultimately do, one of his sort of famous inventions, because this is the history of inventions, was something called a tubed pedicle. The pedicle is the blood supply, remember. So what would happen is when you would move a flap, it would remain raw underneath and that could get infected. So what Gillies did was he rolled it into a tube of flesh so that the inside of that, the inside with all the blood, it's all protected by the skin, the outer skin. And what he could do is it looked like an elephant's trunk. He could move pieces of tissue and skin using these two pedicles that could be quite long. Perhaps he would take a flap from your chest. He would move it partly to your face and then he could start rebuilding. So that was one of his major inventions in plastic surgery. We'll be back after this short break. Throughout June on Not Just the Tudors, we're honoring Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee by focusing on queenship in the 16th and 17th centuries. I'm Professor Suzanne Lipscomb, and all this month with my guests, I'll be exploring the coronations of Tudor queens, Queen's Regnant and Queen's Consort, who wielded power in ways we haven't thought about. Really, when we begin to look at queen consorts, we notice that there's a lot of ways at the Renaissance court that women could hold informal power through their relationship with the king. Then there's the queen who ruled over the Spanish Netherlands and the female Swedish king. You heard that right. What did a 17th century person actually mean by saying, oh, she dresses like a man? If she would have worn male clothing, she wouldn't have been able to rule Sweden. So for a month of all things magisterial and monarchical, look no further than not just the Tudors from History Hit. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What I don't understand, I mean, it's like, how did he know how to do that? I mean, obviously, he's a ENT surgeon, so he understands anatomy and everything else. But presumably, there must have been an element of trial and error when trying out these brand new techniques of facial reconstruction, whatever it is that you do. So what happens if you're in the error section of his trial and error of doing, given that there's no antibiotics at this point? And Yeah, infection could definitely be a problem. I mean, a lot of people listening might say, is this book about the guinea pig club? Now, the guinea pig club were the burn pilots of World War II, and they were operated on by a man named Archibald McIndoe, who was actually Gilly's cousin. It was Gilly's who actually introduced McIndoe to the strange new art of plastic surgery. So this is kind of like the prequel to the guinea pig club. And in fact, these guys in World War I were just as much guinea pigs as the guys in World War II. People didn't know, you know, these surgeons, they didn't know what to do. And there was trial and error, certainly. And I think you mentioned that Gillies never let his yes. patients have mirrors for obvious, obvious reasons. Yeah, he banned mirrors on his wards. And and as you say, it was sort of under the guise of protecting these men, because of course, as you go through the reconstructive process, your face could look worse before it looks better. He didn't want them to get discouraged. However, he did inadvertently instill in them a belief that they had faces that weren't worth looking at. And these men, when they left the hospital grounds, if they went out into the greater community, they were forced to sit on brightly painted blue benches so that the public knew not to look at them. So it was a really isolating experience. And I think we have to remember that Gillies is as much a product of the facial biases of the time because arguably he went far beyond restoring just function to make the face look acceptable by the standards of its day. And arguably we wouldn't need that if people were more accepting of the disfigurement in the first place. That's really interesting. So a lot of the technology that he was working with was sort of yeah. shaped by the technology he's got to work with, so we, that we've talked about, but also the social prejudices of the day. God, I hadn't even thought the of that. prejudices, yeah. As a sort of shaping tool, that's really interesting. 
Yeah, and there were mask makers. You know, some people might be familiar with these masks through the fictional character Richard Harrow in Boardwalk Empire. He wears one of these masks, these tin masks, they call them, but they weren't, they weren't exactly tin. And these artists, they created these non-surgical solutions. Gillies tended to hate them because they reminded him of the limits of his own craft at the time. But he did employ mask makers because they could be useful, for instance, you know, remember these surgeries take sometimes years. So while someone's waiting for the next stage, perhaps they're going to wear one of these prosthetic masks. But I always remind people that these masks were worn for you. They were not worn for the men themselves because they were uncomfortable to wear. They were hot. They didn't age. They didn't move like a face. So all of this was really done for the benefit of the viewer and not actually for the patient themselves. Benefit of the viewer, which kind of segues us on to modern plastic surgery, and I suppose cosmetic surgery, which again is, um, I suppose, for the benefit of, well, I don't know, for the benefit of you and you. Just before we get on to that, I've got a couple of questions. We talked about skin grafts and skin flaps. Just in terms of the major structural reconsurgery, like, for example, if you've got a missing jaw, things like bone grafts, did they exist? Like, And I know you write about you could remove a bit of rib and create a jawbone out of rib or even silver, I think, and you talk about rubber pallets and all kinds of stuff. Where did that all come from? How did that all start to develop? So some of the grafting, again, they're experimenting with it in this age. It's not, the the bone grafts aren't coming from other patients. They tend to take it from yourself. So there's not rejection. So they'll take it from the rib or the cartilage from here or there in your body. So there was some of that going on. The dental implants were really tricky because it's before antibiotics. So a lot of the dental apparatuses are built on the outside of the face to stabilize the bone while it regrows or regenerates. Rather than now today, you would go inside the face. You could put a lot of implants in They didn't really have that option. There are photos in this book, which I chose in conversation with a disability activist named Ariel Henley, who has a disfigurement, and she uses that word to describe herself. Although that word isn't necessarily used by all people in the disability community, we decided that in this case, disfigurement was the right term because these men were disfigured to the society that they lived in. And I didn't want to lessen that impact because I really think it's important people have that reckoning with what these men went through. But yes, there were grafting going on. There was all kinds of technical aspects that these surgeons were learning how to do at this time. The word you use, actually, that's interesting is craft. You describe him almost as a craftsperson, as an artist, as a sculptor might learn a craft in order to create something. I definitely think that there, you know, especially plastic surgery is both art and science. And he works with an artist named Henry Tonks, who was very famous in his own right before the war began. Henry Tonks is so important because he paints these really stunning portraits of these patients and he captures them in color, which the photographers obviously can't do at this time. But he captures their humanity, I think, in a way that the photos can't. And Henry Tonks was also able to provide pictorial records for what Gillies was doing in the operating theater, which was really helpful for people like me who couldn't necessarily visualize it just from words alone. But yeah, Gillies is an artist himself. And in certainly even today, I would say that plastic surgeons are part artist and part medical doctor. Yeah, well, surgeons generally, I'm always just like blown away by the skill of the surgeon. Okay, so in terms of the history of invention, we've got Harold Gillies in the First World War and the First World War and I suppose the American Civil War you mentioned as well being sort of so important to the acceleration of plastic surgery. We've always had things like prosthetics of some kind, haven't we? I mean, we can go all the way back in time in terms of what we call plastic surgery. I mean, the term itself, plastic surgery, when does that come from? 
That's coined in 1798. So at the time, plastic meant something that you could shape or mold. So in this case, a patient's skin or soft tissue. But plastic surgery itself goes back thousands of years. But these earlier attempts at altering the face tend to focus on very small areas, such as the ears or the nose. Also, I want to remind people that undergoing elective surgery in a pre-anesthetic or pre-antiseptic era was really dangerous. Terrible idea. Don't do it. Yeah, terrible, terrible idea. Again, see the butchering art for the horror stories, but... I have nightmares about going back in time in my DeLorean and ending up with a terrible toothache and having to go and have some terrible... You would get out of that DeLorean and you would instantly crack your ankle and oh, <laughs> you'd end up in one of those imagine? operating theaters. And now I'd have and, to go to one of those yeah. barbers who also chops legs off. Oh yeah, exactly. You get the leeches, you get the whole thing. But so yeah, it was dangerous. And so a lot of people who were undergoing it, so there is a German Jewish surgeon named Jacques Joseph who I talk about. He's operating in the First World War. He's doing kind of what Gillies is doing, but in Germany. And he actually was doing sort of cosmetic procedures before the war. He was altering noses for his Jewish clients to alter the perceived signifier of their ethnicity. So this was really as a way of survival. This was not a vanity project. It was about blending into society. So we have to remember that cosmetic surgery, even earlier cosmetic surgery, was a lot of times done as a survival mechanism rather than, you know, you just wanted to look prettier. Okay, well, let's talk about social prejudices now in in modern day. You mentioned, okay, nose altering for that reason, but also, I suppose, things like skin lightening and people get cosmetic surgery for all kinds of terrible reasons, but not just facial reconstruction that we've likely talked about, but because of social prejudices. Did Gilly's work or the actual sort of physical work that he developed with others around him in that time in the around about the First World War, has that sort of carried through to when people have cosmetic surgery now? Same sorts of things. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, the principles of plastic surgery. And if you talk to a plastic surgeon today, they all know Sir Harold Gillies. And I've been interviewed by a couple of them in the U.S. And it's a hero. And they know his book, which was one of the sort of first standardized textbooks about plastic surgery. So those principles carry on today. And I always remind people that if you picture plastic surgery is a heading, underneath you have reconstructive surgery and also cosmetics. So it's all part of the practice of plastic surgery. So there are people still, of course, working on reconstructive aspects people who, you know, have been burned or had accident or congenital defects. And then there's the cosmetic realm. And after World War I, Gillies himself moves into the cosmetic realm. And that's partly to survive. There was nobody practicing plastic surgery and the man had to make some money. So he moves into cosmetic surgery and he really delights in it. He says that reconstructive surgery is about returning something to, quote, normal, whereas cosmetic surgery is about surpassing the normal and to make something look really good. And so he delighted in both challenges. And not only that, he operated during the Second World War. And in 1949, he performs the first phalloplasty on a trans man named Michael Dillon. Phalloplasty, just remind us what that means. So a phalloplasty is the construction of a penis. So Michael Dillon comes to him requesting this gender-affirming surgery. And Gillies undertakes it, which is incredible because, again, this is the 1940s. And he is the first surgeon to successfully perform a phalloplasty on a trans man. He's really well placed to do this at this time because during the Second World War, he was doing a lot of genital reconstruction on soldiers who had been hit in that area. So he was familiar with the equipment, so to speak, and he was able to do that for Michael Dillon. Later, Michael Dillon was outed by the British press and there was such a media frenzy that he was driven from Britain. And he said that Gillies stood by him. And so I said there weren't a lot of people in 1949 who would have seen Michael Dillon as a man, but Gillies wasn't one of them. 
It's really interesting, actually, the distinction you make between reconstructive surgery and, and I suppose, cosmetic surgery. I mean, the other thing that we haven't talked about, as well as sort of social prejudice, is people's relationship with time. People want time to stop and they want to look young. And well, I suppose this is, comes down to social prejudice, too. I mean, things like Botox and facelifts and boob jobs and bum jobs. When, I mean, I Gillies mean, is doing some of that as well. I mean, He's not doing implants. So a a lot of times women wanted to have breast reductions in his period. And this, again, this is kind of linked to racial biases as well of the time. So we always have to keep in mind that current trends could have racial implications even today. And so he's doing a lot of breast reductions after the war. He's doing facelifts as well. He's doing a lot of different things, nose jobs for, you know, personal reasons, not reconstructive reasons. And he would even reduce the prices of his surgeries if he felt that, for instance. Now, this is kind of a weird thing and of the time. But, you know, he said that if a woman came to him and felt that her marriage was failing and he was going to help her achieve the goals that she wanted aesthetically, and he would reduce his prices to help this person. So he really believed that people had a right to kind of be the master of their identity and to look the way that they wanted to look. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, identity is the word. And I think, you know, quite often we're a bit sniffy about cosmetic surgery. It's a bit of a joke, people who have Botox and this kind of stuff. But it actually touches all kinds of very personal, serious issues, you know, you never know what's why people do have this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and Gilly said that too, you know, if somebody is, feels insecure about something, who is he to say that that's not something that they should try to fix? Exactly. Um, so he would see personal happiness that he could give his private clients who were doing cosmetic surgery. He saw that same kind of happiness that he was bestowing on the soldiers of World War One. in a lot of instances, even though these were much smaller and arguably totally unnecessary surgeries. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I mean, I hear about all kinds of things in the sort of like, you know, you start Googling cosmetic surgery and you're like, wait a second, people do that? <laughs> right. I know. I mean, and, and there's definitely like a bigger conversation probably to be had within, you know, cosmetic surgery as well about how patients are targeted, for instance, on Instagram and the filters that we use and all of these things that, yeah, they're all affecting our self-confidence. And I'm sure Gillies would have some interesting thoughts on that as well. He was always trying to push the envelope, though, and I don't want people to think that whatever Gillies was doing was somehow more noble because he also, as I said, moved into the cosmetic realm and he felt that cosmetic surgery was just as noble as his reconstructive work because it really did help people on a personal level. So I think that, you know, what the industry has become is fascinating. It certainly doesn't necessarily resemble what he was doing during the First World War, but he would have been so interested in the way that plastic surgeons today are pushing the envelope and trying different new techniques. And of course, I end the book with this discussion about face transplants, which I imagine if Gillies had lived, this would have been something he would have been fascinated with. And this is not just reconstructive surgery. This is also transplant surgery because you're taking literally somebody else's face and you're transplanting it onto somebody else. And it's incredible what these surgeons are able to now do. Did you see that documentary? I think it was called Face Off with John Travolta and very... (laughs) realistic Did documentary. Did you just call it a documentary? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly like, yeah, if I took Nicholas's Cage's face and I put it on my own, I would look just like him. That's exactly how that works. Like my mom asked me that question too. And I said, mom, you know, your bone structure is different. Like, so the thing people ask about face transplants is like how unsettling that would be for the family of the donor to see the face. Yeah, but we do it on Instagram now. That's the thing. Like you mentioned Instagram. There's all these I know, those are really creepy too. (laughs) Those are also very problematic for other reasons. Yeah. Do you think the kind of cosmetic surgery is a thing? In a way, 
in the digital age, sort of Facebook filters and these apps that sort of change your faces. In a way, it's sort of providing a function that cosmetic surgery used to provide. Yeah, I think so. But I think a lot of, especially younger people now, they take such a hit on their self-confidence that they are turning to surgical solutions. And that can be problematic, especially, you know, I remember when I was a young girl, I must have been about 13 or 14. I guess I had quite a large nose for my face. I had this older GP who mentioned this to my grandmother when brought in. This is like in the, I guess, like mid 90s. And I asked my grandma what the doctor meant. She goes, oh, well, she just said that maybe you you know, you want to get your nose done at some point. Well, my nose totally changed about three years later, and I never did get that surgery done. So young children's faces change quite significantly as you grow older. And so I do think some of the filters are creating a lot of lack of confidence in some of these people, and then they're turning to surgical solutions. But again, I go back to what Gilly said, who are we to judge what people want to do to their faces? I just hope that when people decide to go through any kind of procedure, they really give it a lot of thought. Because remember, Remember, it is surgery and it comes with risks. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that's a whole other, we could have a very long conversation about all of this. Like Gillies, we are products of our age and our social norms and everything else. It's impossible to step outside your point of history and being a human being. We all have our bias. Apart from me, I don't have any biases, of course. I'm completely (laughs) non-biased on all things. But you didn't recognize the villain thing. You know, that's so ingrained in our subconscious. You know, when I start to talk about that, like Darth Vader and Voldemort, and you think, oh my God, there are so many villains in these movies. And now I'm so sensitive to it. We just watched the latest Batman and Penguin in it. He's slightly disfigured as well. And I just instantly switch off now because it really ingrains that biasy back into us about this kind of lazy trope that someone with a disfigurement is evil. You know, that scene with John Hurt, you know, as the elephant man, when he's in his mask, you know, he's in this cloth mask with a single hole for his eye. We are absolutely repulsed or we're scared we don't know what it is and the mask is ripped off we see this terrible deformity and we are shocked like the doctors in the audience but because the camera stays on him because we see him all the time we slowly get used to it and then we start to empathize with him as a human and then we start to understand his situation and he becomes a character that we love makes that point about our initial reaction to facial deformity I think there is a very visceral reaction. You know, I really advocated for the inclusion of the photos in this book because I think it's important we look at these men's faces. But, you know, I don't want to exploit them also. And so I hope that the context that I give to their stories, but there were, for instance, Walter Ashworth, who I introduced at the beginning of this talk, he lost part of his jaw. It was a very disfiguring wound that he suffered and his fiance broke off the engagement. So it was really sad. And a lot of times these men, you know, had very similar stories. Later, the fiance's friend actually begins writing to him at the hospital and they fall in love. So it's quite a nice little story in there. But when he's discharged from the army, he goes back to work as a tailor's assistant and his boss makes him work at the back of the shop and perform only menial tasks because he doesn't want him to, quote, frighten the customers. So this was an incredibly, as I said, an incredibly isolating, lonely experience. And what Harold Gillies gave them back was their spirits and their identity. And so it's really important that their voices be heard and their stories be known. And it makes us quite question, you know, as you say, all of what we are doing today, all the filters, all the ways that we project identity as well. And the wonderful things, of course, that plastic surgeons are still able to do for patients, like the face transplants and and all kinds of other amazing technologies that have come out of the birth of modern plastic surgery. It's a fascinating story. It's a lovely book. The Face Maker, Lindsay Fitzharris, thank you very, very much for joining us and painting a lovely portrait of it. It's been terrific to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Okay, that's it for this episode. Thank you very, very much for listening. Lindsay's new book is absolutely fantastic. I've read it. It's great. It's called Facemaker. It is out now. Get it wherever you buy your books. Next up on the next episode, we have one on, well, home turf for me, on the Lunar Rover, the car that we drove on the moon. Not we drove, the Apollo astronauts drove on the moon with and I'm going to be interviewing Eddie Alterman who's the host of a new podcast from our friends over at Pushkin called Car Show so if you're a car fan don't forget to tune in if you're an Apollo space fan don't forget to tune in wherever you get your podcasts even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Folk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.